Welcome back from lunch. I hope everyone had a good meal. Um, a little housekeeping note, as you may notice, Jelani Cobb was not able to make it today. Uh, he missed his flight, and therefore we are uh, unfortunately going to have to go on without him. That said, it is my honor and privilege to moderate this panel on uh, policing impact on minority communities. It is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. My father retired as a detective sergeant uh, from the Fort Wayne, Indiana Police Department. I, he was a proud man. He was proud to be a police officer. And he was also a very proud black man. And so I grew up with a very uh, particular understanding of police power and the power of racism. He, uh, one time I told him about the first time I got pulled over. I, I, uh, I just started giving the story as it came. And uh, he, and as I said, when I reached over to grab my registration, and he's like, wait, wait, you did what? Don't ever, ever do that again. And the reason was, is I had started to reach for the registration before the police officer came to the car. And if, they, if a police officer doesn't see the back of your, sees you go down for the back of your head and he doesn't know what's going on, he, is going, he might escalate the situation. The story is relatively simple. I was uh, driving home from my, my father's neighborhood, predominantly black neighborhood in Fort, in Fort Wayne. It's about one or two o'clock in the morning. Uh, it's 1995. I've got my hat to the back. You know, I'm driving a 1980 Chevy Impala. It's, you know, a big puke green car. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I'm just driving down this four-lane four road. The only other uh, car is the police officer coming towards me. And I'm not speeding or anything, so I'm not thinking too much of it. I happened to look in my rearview mirror after we pass, and he pulled a Yui. And I'm like, OK, here we go. And so silly me being 18 and kind of stupid, um, as soon as I got out of range, I gunned it. And I tried to go around the corner. And uh, luckily, there was a red light stopping me from my stupidity. And I slowed down by the time he caught up with me, so he never knew that. And as I said, I reached over and grabbed the registration, and uh, because of course, that's what you're supposed to do. And uh, as he came up to the car, I noticed he had his hand on his gun. And he came up to the, to the window. And he's like, oh, ah, hey, I thought you were a thug or something. And as soon as he saw me, he relaxed. And the rest of the stop went like many of the stops some of you, I'm sure, have had in this room. Um, I had a front headlight out. I didn't know about it. He, you know, he was jocular. It was, it was a friendly conversation. And I got off with a verbal warming. He's like, just get that headlight fixed so I don't have to give you a $185 ticket. Bye. And that was the end of it. But that was my first encounter with a police officer. And in retrospect, knowing what I know now, it was a pretextual stop. He thought, you know, it, it just, everything matched up. I, I was coming out of the wrong neighborhood, driving the wrong kind of car, driving with, with you know, uh, exhibiting hat to the back, and it's dark, so he couldn't tell what color I was. But as soon as he got to the window, he saw it, and he relaxed. So this is something that I think people ha really have to, uh, to internalize, that so for many people in this country, they don't have that, that sort of what people would call white privilege that I got. You know, as soon as he saw me, I was fine. Most people who deal with police officers don't, I mean, I mean, excuse me, you know, a lot of people who have to deal with police in that uh, situation wouldn't have gotten that de-escalation, and that's a problem. But 
As our panelists will explain, different treatment by law enforcement is not just a problem for America's black communities. In recent years, American hostility towards immigrants and Muslim communities have affected our criminal laws. These deeply held fears and prejudices have manifested different in different policies to discuss these, <coughs> excuse me, have manifested in different policies enforced by our police and US Border Patrol. Here to discuss these issues, and of course the black, well, excuse me, uh, with, with American law enforcement are our distinguished panelists. First is uh, Vicki Galbeca of the ACLU of New Mexico. She joined the ACLU in 2009 to become director of the ACLU New Mexico Regional Center for Border Rights. She helped develop and implement its mission of addressing civil and human rights violations that stem from border-specific uh, rights, excuse me, border-specific immigration policy and enforcement. The Regional Center for Border Rights also acts as the southern office of the ACLU New Mexico and helps identify and address civil rights issues in southern New Mexico to ensure all families of the border region live freely, safely, and with dignity. Our second speaker is uh, Professor Wadi Saeed, who's professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Uh, Saeed is a graduate of Princeton University and Columbia School of Law, where he served as an articles editor at the Columbia Human Rights Review. Prior to joining the faculty at the University of South Carolina, he was a visiting professor in the Law and Society program at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and assistant federal public defender in the Office of the Federal Public Defender for the Middle District of Florida, where he represented one of the defendants in the case U.S. versus Al Arian, a complex terrorism conspiracy case. And with that, Vicki Gautbeck. I'm a little bit shorter than Jonathan, so. <clears throat> All right, good afternoon. In addition to running the ACLU of New Mexico Regional Center for Border Rights, I also co-chair co the Southern Border Communities Coalition, which is, represents about 60 organizations from, uh, on the US-Mexico border from Brownsville, Texas to San Diego, California. So I think it's only fitting that um, after lunch, I start with a story about food. So a few weeks ago, early November, the US Customs and Border Protection announced in a press release that they had caught a traveler at Los Angeles airport with 450 illegal tamales. The traveler was fined $1,000, according to the release, and the tamales were seized and destroyed. Now, I don't know if this means anything to you, but it takes 438 steps to make tamales. It takes a couple days. These northern Mexican delicacies are an oyster of corn yumminess filled with pearls of beef or pork wrapped and delivered in corn husks. Tamales are the comfort food of the holidays, but tamales are also a sacred food of the borderlands. Predictably, borderlanders reacted with cynicism to this news. The story spread throughout social media with comments that questioned the use of taxpayers' money to defend the homeland against marauding tamales. A campaign hashtag was born, no tamale is illegal. Civil disobedience was the passing of tamales through the border fence between Mexico and the United States. And in this picture, you can see my colleague and good friend, Christian Ramirez, doing the passing of the tamales between the fence. I share this odd story 
because it is a reminder to Borderlanders of how much our home has changed. I have lived here for more than 25 years, and I can remember a time when the U.S.-Mexico borderline separated two countries, but not families or friends, and especially not during the holidays, or us from our tamales. The border is not just a line. We're almost 15 million people. Our 25 ports of entry are critical gateways to Mexico, our third largest trading partner and the second largest market for U.S. exports. Every day, more than 400,000 people enter legally through our southern ports, and the vast majority of crossers are border residents who come to shop, do business, and visit, fueling our economy. Mexico is a top export destination for heartland states, heartland states such as Nebraska, Iowa, and Kansas, and an estimated 6 million, one in 24 jobs in, this, in the United States depend on trade with Mexico. But we don't often hear about the border's contributions to our nation. In the public narrative, the border is a no man's land between the United States and a wave of violence spawned by illicit drug cartels to our south. In just a decade and a half, this narrative about our home has fed into a colossal militarization frenzy. Since 2003, the U.S. Border Patrol has doubled in size to about 21,400 agents, with about 85% of them deployed at the U.S.-Mexico border. There are now so many Border Patrol agents at our border that if they lined up equally between Brownsville and San Diego, they would be in full sight of one another. Thousands of other federal law enforcement agency officials also stand guard at our border, including CBP officers who guard our ports of entry and one-fourth of all ICE personnel. The southern border also has 652 miles of fencing. There are thousands of ground sensors, hundreds of cameras, license plate readers, and video surveillance systems, several aerostats, and at least six Predator B unmanned aircraft systems. In addition, we have all of these interior checkpoints along the U.S.-Mexico border that are far away from the international boundary line that has things like backscatter x-ray vans that can x-ray um, cars pulled over into secondary. Much of this equipment, by the way, are hand-me-downs from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Between fiscal year 2004 and 2015, the budget of CBP increased more than 107% to nearly 12.5 billion. By way of comparison, this jump in funding is more than quadruple the growth of NASA's budget and almost 10 times that of the National Institutes of Health. U.S. taxpayers now spend more on immigration and border enforcement than on the FBI, DEA, ATF, U.S. Marshals, and Secret Service combined. CBP's spending also runs counter to data on migration trends. Overall, border-wide apprehension by CBP are near their lowest rates in 40 years. In fiscal year 2014, each Border Patrol agent apprehended a nationwide average of 26 people, about two people a month. CBP is now the largest law enforcement agency in the nation and possibly the world. 
yet its massive expansion has not been matched with adequate accountability and oversight. Not unlike many communities throughout the nation who have experienced the militarization of police, we are witness to increases in civil and human rights abuses, excessive use of force, and rampant racial profiling of borderlanders, many of whom are US citizens who have lived in the region for generations. One New Mexican and US citizen, for example, was held for hours by CBP officials who subjected her to repeated invasive searches at a port of entry in El Paso, Texas, and subsequently a local hospital. After hours of humiliating searches she never consented to and which never turned up contraband, she was released with a hospital bill. By maintaining interior checkpoints and roving patrols many miles from the border, CBP is acting as an interior police force within an antiquated 100-mile zone. This zone of claimed authority has no statutory basis and originated without scrutiny 60 years ago in now outdated regulations. The area includes two-thirds of the US population, entire states like Florida and Maine, as well as almost all of the country's top metropolitan areas. In other words, this kind of scrutiny could be happening in your town. CBP's interior enforcement activities do little to further border security goals but much harm to the quality of life of those who live and work in the border region. This includes communities like Aravaca, Arizona, where residents documented daily encounters with agents. Their report found that Latino motorists were more than 26 times more likely to be asked to show some identification and 20 times more likely to be sent to secondary inspection than white motorists. We confirmed this prevalence of racial profiling when in May we published Guilty Until Proven Innocent, an investigation into the practices of Border Patrol in southern New Mexico that found that agents profiled innocent residents who were doing nothing more than going about their daily lives. About 90% of the abuses were reported by US citizens, 81% who self-identified as Latino or Hispanics. In the context of persistent complaints of profiling, we were dismayed that CBP obtained exemptions from the Department of Justice guidance on profiling released a year ago. Corruption and criminal conduct have also plagued the expanded CBP force, which, as reported by Politico magazine, had nearly one CBP officer or agent arrested for misconduct every single day between 2005 and 2012. Politico Magazine's expose closely examines CBP's use of force policy and practice and concludes the agency has become one of our nation's deadliest and most out of control federal law enforcement agencies. Since January 2010, at least 42 individuals have died as a result of use of force by CBP officials. These cases include at least 18 individuals who are US citizens and six individuals who were shot and killed while standing in Mexico, three of whom were ages 15, 16, and 17. In numerous cases, individuals were shot multiple times, including through the back, 
such as 16-year-old Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez, who was struck by at least eight bullets, all but one in the back, when shot by agents across the border fence in Nogales, Sonora. Also among the most well-known cases is that of Anastasio Hernandez Rojas, who by the happenstance of a witness video was shown to be handcuffed and prostrated on the ground, contrary to the agency's own recording, when dozens of agents beat and tased them to death. The San Diego coroner classified Mr. Hernandez's death as a homicide, noting in addition to a heart attack, several loose teeth, bruising to his chest, stomach, hips, knees, back, lips, head, and eyelids, five broken ribs, and a damaged spine. In none of these cases has an agent been held accountable. Former head of CBP Internal Affairs James F. Tomshek flagged at least a quarter of 28 lethal force cases as highly suspect and alleged that Border Patrol officials have consistently tried to change or distort facts to make fatal shootings by agents appear to be a good shoot and cover up any wrongdoing. Perhaps most alarmingly, Tomshek said he believes that thousands of employees hired by CBP during the agency's unprecedented expansion after 9-11 are potentially unfit to carry a badge and gun. Lack of accountability for these unprofessional and dangerous personnel mars the reputations of officers and agents who conduct themselves properly. Some progress has been made in the last year and a half. In May 2014, CBP released a new use of force handbook and created processes that promise transparency. This October, CBP released new standards that for the first time create minimum requirements agency-wide for officers and agents to transport, escort, search, and detain individuals. But there is still a lot more work left to do. Border communities generally feel that border enforcement agents who commit abuse are getting away with it. So as employees of nation's largest law enforcement agency, and I repeat, they are law enforcement and should not have any exceptions to police best practices, CBP's officials should be trained and held to the highest standards. Systemic, robust, and permanent oversight, accountability, and transparency mechanisms for CBP would include, and I can see some people rolling eyes here, equipping of all CBP personnel with body-worn cameras with adequate privacy protections. If you don't think or don't support body-worn cameras, then I encourage you to go online and download the mobile justice app where citizens can film these encounters themselves. Implementing a complete ban on racial profiling, including gathering of data and public reporting on all stops, searches, and arrests, creating a uniform, transparent complaint system, and rolling back the antiquated 100-mile zone. Such improvements would create a legacy of CBP reform that would improve our quality of life and restore trust for this and future generations of border residents. The reality of border communities is that we are safe, diverse, and economically critical to this country. We are an intercultural community who pride ourselves in our Spanglish and our indigenous roots. We are businesses, schools, and churches 
who loved to throw salsa, queso fresco, and tamales into our worldview. But our communities are forced to endure regular aggressions, hostility, and intimidation from a significant percentage of CBP officers and agents. Border residents, like any community, should not have to live with fear and mistrust of law enforcement. Thank you. So just to conclude, I'd like to show a film that we actually um, produced. And I can't remember how to do this. Um, OK. I don't know if this works. I don't think so. I'm used to touch screens. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I just wanted to show this film very quickly that we did about our community and how they experience Border Patrol. Oh, it's with that. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I feel like discrimination is like when someone comes up to you and immediately judges you by what you look like, how you dress, or how dark your skin is. And I feel like at the Border Patrol checkpoints, that happens all the time. is pretty laid back, you know. There's there's a lot of friendly people here and a lot of good people who are willing to help you. I have an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old. They both learned to drive here. They've been real, real devoted football players, very loyal to the program, working really hard and, and doing everything the coaches asked. Um, when I pull up, like I say, they either they either just with their hand go like that and say nothing and I just keep driving, or they uh, very often will just say thank you, and I keep driving. So when I go through with my children, I have a, a different experience. And when I travel with them, always, always, that Border Patrol agent, he never does this, he never says thank you. He will always step forward and lean in a little bit and look at me and look at my sons. El Paso is a great place. It's uh, very culturally diverse. We have the military. We have Mexico right on the other side. Food is amazing. Um, there's just so many positives to it, and, and it's just it's home to me. I kind of appreciate the fact that uh, El Paso, being predominantly Hispanic, I, I'm not looked at any different, with the exception of <laughs> when, I, when I try to leave my home. I encounter the Border Patrol more frequently at the checkpoints. 
wasn't until I started my business and consistently was traveling so frequently that I had things to compare to, you know, the type of vehicle I was in, how I might be dressed that day, where I started noticing trends. And that's when I started to feel targeted, racially profiled, and uncomfortable. It went from, uh, from an inconvenience to, to, you know, occasionally just scary and sometimes just demeaning, you know, other drivers are passing by looking upon me as if I'm a criminal when I've done nothing wrong. I've had to alter the way my, my travel plans based on the fact that it happens so frequently that I gotta make anticipations for it. I've shown up to appointments late. I've missed opportunities on motorcycles where I show up and they've sold it right before I got there because I was detained at a checkpoint. I'd like to see the Border Patrol maybe shift away from, from racial profiling and maybe encourage cooperation. They've implemented a, a sort of a tyranny of fear and oppression and you know people aren't willing to cooperate because they feel victimized. I used to teach uh, citizenship and ESL classes in Anthony, New Mexico. I, I learned a lot from my students, learned a lot of Spanish. <laughs> uh, but I also learned that you know I wasn't alone in these experiences. You're involved in your community hoping that it'll, it'll protect you and sometimes you feel like it's targeting you instead. The message that is sent to my children is that they're they're different in a way that attracts the attention of the authorities. And again, not different because they've done anything wrong. Um, there's absolutely no basis for it. They're not criminals, they're just regular kids. They should not be singling out Hispanics for different treatment than treating them differently than they treat me as a white person in this community. We should all be the same. All they're doing is just singling out people because of their race, the color of their skin, the color of their eyes, then that's just plain discrimination and it should not be occurring. I want to thank Jonathan for the introduction and for inviting me along with Adam Bates here. Um, for me, it's a really, I think, great opportunity to expand um, my discussion and my um, presentation of the issues that I've been covering for a long time and studying for a long time related to terrorism prosecutions in the United States and talk about some of these issues in front of a different audience, uh, non-academic audience, non-community audience. Uh, and basically, I'm going to be speaking a little bit about, from, about uh, what I've just written a book about, which is a book on terrorism prosecutions called Crimes of Terror, the Legal and Political Implications of Federal Terrorism Prosecutions. And in the book, I kind of track the terrorism prosecution, that is to say, the government's attempts to criminally prosecute individuals they believe are involved with terrorist-related crimes 
um, over the course of a prosecution. So I start with investigations and then talk about the statutory basis and then talk about is issues related to the generation and use of evidence before talking about sentencing. Uh, and then finally, uh, and then finally uh, some more theoretical stuff. Basically, the, the focus of the book is on the distorting effect that these criminal prosecutions have had on uh, American criminal justice uh, in, in a general sense, that is to say, on criminal law and procedure, how the doctrines have changed as a result of, of prosecutions of terrorism uh, and, the, and the kind of exceptionalism or terrorist exceptionalism um, that we've seen occur in, in these criminal prosecutions. And the, the, the population that's been principally affected is the Muslim community in the United States. So there's a kind of a target here, but that's not the end of the discussion, because as uh, I'll hopefully elucidate at the end of my remarks, the effects or the, 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 the results of terrorism prosecutions and these new or innovative tactics um, has the potential to migrate into ordinary law enforcement, uh, ordinary law enforcement um, tactics and practices. So, Normally, when I talk about my work, I, I tend to make two points about two critical points that are, that are I think, essential for understanding, uh, understanding the, 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 the issues that terrorism prosecutions present and the fact that they uh, speak to this type of uh, exceptionalism. I think I'm only going to make one because the second one relates to uh, sort of statutory, more legalistic concerns, which I can turn to maybe a little bit later. But the... the one critical point, perhaps the critical point, is that terrorism prosecutions uh, have been rooted in an idea that the Department of Justice feels like it should be preventing acts of terrorism before they occur. That is to say, they are adopting a preventive model of prosecution. So this was a tactic that was adopted in the wake of the September 11, 2001 attacks. The DOJ, then Attorney General Ashcroft, basically instituted this policy of a preventive focus. And that's continued to guide terrorism investigations and prosecutions since then. And that's in, in contrast to the pre-9-11 approach, which was one of punishment. That is to say, there's been an act of violence, an act of politically motivated violence. Perpetrators are caught and then tried. Uh, given that we now have a shift, so before 9-11, the prerequisite being an act of violence and a link to the United States. Now, with the focus on prevention, we basically don't have, uh, we both, we, we basically don't ensure that violence has to occur before the government can charge someone with terrorism-related crimes. And so, essentially, when you have such a preventive focus, that is to say, you're looking at situations and law enforcement and then the prosecutor's office, federal prosecutor's office, and the FBI we're talking about really here, steps in before anything occurs. Now, we don't have any definitive proof that something would actually occur. And the law that's used, the main statutory law that's used in most of these prosecutions, the ban on providing material support to a foreign terrorist organization, which is unique among criminal laws in that it criminalizes support as support, is a problematic, uh, problematic statute that I've studied for many years and written about for many years. But essentially, I'll sum it up by saying that this preventive posture raises real questions about an individual suspect's dangerousness 
if the government has to rely on that individual's political or religious activity or statements, what should be protected speech, to bring terrorism charges before any violence has taken place. Now, the nature of the terrorism threat, which the government, I don't think it's unfair to say, has identified as chiefly a Muslim threat, has been greatly exaggerated. And that's something to which the preventive paradigm has contributed greatly. So, for example, in the decade after September 11th, the 10 years after September 11th, I think the statistic is over 94% of all the terrorism-related convictions in the United States recorded by the Department of Justice were either preventive prosecution cases or cases that involved elements of preventive prosecution. And in many, if not most of these instances, the government played a central role in producing or creating the threat. And I'll talk about that in a second with the discussion on informants. Now, this fact, I think, raises significant questions, not just about an individual defendant's dangerousness, but also about the national security-driven need for the erosion of rights that courts have repeatedly approved. Okay. What, what, specifically speaking, because if you follow terrorism prosecutions, you see that these points kind of flow together, and the exceptionalism runs through each stage. But here, given the theme of the conference and the focus on policing and what and, and sort of what law enforcement should be looking for in situations like these, I, I think we'll, I'll stick to the discussion of the discussion of investigations. And chiefly, we look at what the government has used in, by way of informants and also spying. I think we can safely call it that, and I'll say why in a second here. But the government's counterterrorism-based law enforcement theories are rooted in something called radicalization. And you've probably seen that term uh, bandied about a little bit, especially in the most recent uh, Paris attacks. Uh, that theory or that, that phrase has been used. And basically, the government, the FBI, has its own theory of radicalization, as does the New York Police Department. And they kind of work off of each other. Because I'm going to talk about the two cases, the New York Police Department case a little bit less than the FBI. But essentially, counterterrorism efforts here in this country are fueled by radicalization, which essentially, I don't want to use too much qualified language here or too much snarky language, but it purports. OK, I just did it. All right, it purports to give us a series of markers by which law enforcement can go in and identify when someone might manifest as a terrorist threat. Okay, So it breaks it up. Both of these reports, the FBI report is from 2006, the New York Police Department report is from 2007. They break radicalization up into four phases. The FBI, for example, talks about phase one, pre-radicalization. Phase two, identification. Phase three, indoctrination. Phase four, action. The, M the NYPD talks about phase one, pre-radicalization. Phase two, indoctrination. Phase three, self-identification. Phase four, jihadization. In case you were worried about who the target of radicalization or who might radicalize, there's your clue. Okay. Why I'm critical, and I, I discuss it a great deal in the book, but why I'm critical, and I think others have been as well, 
you know, study this, is that this basically operates like a racial profile, which as we've seen in other contexts in, uh, in American law enforcement has been banned. Specifically, the Department of Justice in December of last year actually banned racial profiling in, 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 in police work and law enforcement work. But radicalization, radicalization persists. I mean, and some of the reasons why I think it's so absurd is because it says things like, who's at risk of being radicalized? Well, young Muslim men, okay? But it doesn't matter. Their age is not determinative, okay? And it could also be women, okay? Um, what type of young... Muslim men who can also be of different ages and also be women, well, people who are down on their luck and out of work, but also people who are successful college students and are doing well in their lives. So if you read the report cover to cover, and yes, I have in both cases, you see that it really is a kind of a dressed, a dressed up profile. Uh, and, 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 and obviously that has many, many problems as law enforcement experience in a general context has shown us in the United States. In the New York Police Department context, what that resulted in, what the uh, radicalization report sort of reflected and produced was a wholesale uh, spying program on the whole, on New York, the New York City Muslim community, writ large, all, all various groups and populations, et cetera, to the point where the New York police were doing stuff like sending people into mosques to just to look, just listen to what people were talking about. They called them mosque crawlers or rakers. They would rake over to find the coals of terrorist plots, which supposedly were there. Because in the words of one NYPD official, mosques are different. They're not like churches. They're there all the time, right? And they even had a legal classification where they, the New York Police Department described mosques as terrorism enterprises. Right, so, so I say this not an exaggeration, but because these kind of definitions and these preconceived notions served the purpose of paving the way for a legal regime that was used to spy on the whole, to spy on the whole community. Now, the reason why I think that's worthy to point out, and this was uncovered by um, uncovered by then AP reporters who wrote a book about it, uh, Matt Apuzzo and Adam Goldman. Basically, it never worked. This entire program that lasted years, that covered the whole community, Muslim community in New York City and in surrounding areas, the NYPD was found to be spying all over the Northeast on college groups and community groups. It never worked. It didn't produce one single criminal prosecution. Okay. So that's sort of, I think, people understand, or at least in people who've analyzed it have understood the New York Police Department program as one that sort of went, uh, went too far. The FBI's method is different, it's, uh, it's, it's, and it's twofold. It's to use something called assessments and also to use informants. Well, what are assessments? Basically, an FBI analyst can open up, can basically on a very low factual predicate, um, can basically commission a report on legal activity or something that just exists. How many Algerians are there in the Los Angeles area, right? And then, and, and, basically, um, and basically have a report uh, which serves as a, called an assessment, which is a precursor to mapping a community. This is another phase that's, another phrase that's used, 
which can also then lead to the use of informants in particular communities. It's based on the preventive approach. If that law enforcement knows where what community is and what it's made, how, who it's made up of, et cetera, it can better react. So for example, in the years uh, 2009 to 2011, uh, there were 84,000 assessments that the FBI did. In total, uh, 43,000 of them were for national security purpose. Now, obviously, many of those don't lead to any criminal investigations, but the FBI retains the information for its own purposes. And as I said, that's a way that the FBI sort of uh, holds on to to look for who should be an informant. Okay, and by informant, I mean someone who has no connection to any criminal activity, right, as opposed to a cooperator who gets caught and then uh, flips on his, uh, his, his co-suspects. So the government uses, I think it's fair to say, heavy means to create informants. For example, in one case, there was a fellow government, the FBI approached him. Uh, he's an Iranian uh, in this country looking for political asylum. Government, the FBI approached him, said, will you work with us? He said, sure, but I'll work openly. They said, no, we want you to do it undercover. He said, sorry, no. Then he found his political asylum case thwarted. Uh, another fellow who had a cousin in the Al-Qaeda movement was asked to work with the FBI, help spy on his cousin. He said no. He found his legal status in the United States uh, basically um, under attack and in, in the courts and that he was not allowed to stay. And that the FBI continued to, uh, to thwart his um, residence in the United States even after his, his cousin was killed. Um, Finally, in another case in Boston, there was an individual who he alleges was approached to be an informant. When he said no, he was charged with terrorism-related uh, crimes. Ultimately, he was convicted and sentenced to many years in prison. Another tactic is to use the no-fly list. Inform, be an informant, or we're going to put you on the no-fly list. That's been the subject of a lawsuit. I'm sorry, I'm running out of time. We got time. We got time? He shouldn't have said Anyway. Uh, okay, okay. So... Uh, Another tactic is this use of the no-fly list, as I was talking about. That's also been the subject of a lawsuit. We've seen individual American citizens who have been detained abroad and beaten up uh, and tortured by foreign uh, intelligence organizations. Um, those individuals haven't had, haven't had any success. These are American citizens, by the way. They, they, they haven't had any success in the courts here. So there are many, many... Um, many tactics that the government can use. Uh, and in the typical criminal prosecution, the pattern is that the informants go out without any factual predicates or without any pre-existing suspicion that, you know, mosque X or individual Y is up to anything. It's just that they're kind of approached by an informant who then uh, suggests the plot, hey, hey, you know, oftentimes preying on people who are weak and who are poor. And uh, we've seen in many cases the, you know, the, one of the defenses or one of the things that the target says is that they were actually trying to scam the informant who was offering lots of money and they were poor and they needed money. Uh, and then finally, the informant often provides the means to carry out the plot. So what I need, for example, the informant will say something like what I need for you is to help me take this bomb and set it off. Okay, well, where are you going to get a bomb? Don't worry, I, the informant, have it. Okay. Now, 
essentially we have a situation where in the post 9-11 world the FBI has has basically um, thank you has um, reported around 15 or 16,000 informants uh, on its book now to give you an idea as to as to the actual nature of the threat, there have been a couple of studies done, one of which says that 1%, 1% of the terrorism prosecutions, terrorism investigations carried out in the United States have actually been geared at a, a, a true security threat. That is to say, someone who is planning an attack, an operational attack, without government help. Another study says the number is more like 3%. But even if you take the, the, the second study, we're still talking about 97% of terrorism investigations involving individuals who were not a threat before the government approached them. Okay. Um, and we see, we, see how, uh, we see how informants operate. I mean, in one case that's been covered kind of extensively in the press, uh, an individual who was uh, a Pakistani individual who was caught basically doing written tests because he could speak English for individuals who couldn't speak English at the Albany, New York Department of Motor Vehicles. When he was caught and charged criminally, he was looking at a fraud uh, conviction, which would have put his immigration status in doubt and deportation to Pakistan on the table. So he said, hey, I want to work with you. He said, well, you can be an informant. So he did. And he targeted numerous people. Um, by going out there and, as I mentioned earlier, kind of trawling, you know, showing up in fancy cars at mosques, offering money, etc. Okay. Now, in these cases, entrapment is not a is not a defense. Okay. So, when we we think about the definition of what entrapment is, uh, you don't look at what the police or the informant are doing. You look at the predisposition of of the defendant. Okay. And in a terrorism prosecution, if the defendant has an Arabic name or a Muslim name, they're probably going to be found by a judge or jury to be predisposed. Okay. I'm going to try to finish up. There's a bunch here that I wanted to mention, to, especially to tie it into the, to, the, to the subject of the conference. I'll say two things. Uh, one is that recent scholarly work on this issue has shown that the overfocus on informants and the preventive approach has basically caused the government to miss real threats. Uh, that's, I think, a critical point. The other is we're seeing the, the terrorism investigation and use of informants and spying as a kind of a change, uh, a wholesale change that's being adopted across the board. Um, I mean, if you remember, snitching and informing was coming under sustained attack in Congress and in, in, and in the general public and given a lot of criticism in the press for what it was doing to minority communities in the United States. Um, now we're seeing terrorism as the new sort of gateway approach to get all these tactics um, back in, in vogue. Now we've seen the Occupy movement, the Blacks Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement uh, being um, being spied on and infiltrated uh, as terrorism has been the kind of the gateway drug, so to speak. We also see now the Department of Agriculture, the IRS, the Small Business Administration uh, have undercover wings, again, 
inspired by the war on terror, even though they're prosecuting fraud. Even the Supreme Court police, I didn't know there was a Supreme Court police, but I found this out, uh, have been going out to spy on demonstrations in front of the Supreme Court. Essentially, we're in a strange situation. We're in a strange situation. Uh, the FBI is becoming as a result of these tactics and their migration into ordinary law enforcement, uh, there's an element of a domestic intelligence or an internal security function to the FBI. And I, I'm, I guess I would conclude by asking, when was that organ authorized? And is that something we as a democratic society are comfortable with? Okay, thank you, everyone. Um, thank you both for uh, great presentations. Um, because, although Jelani couldn't make it, I want to make a couple things that I have written uh, to speak about in other places. Uh, just to provide a brief summary, I don't have a full thing together, but I just, some, some stuff I think people should think about. I, I think the theme of this panel is that there are legal, legal du double standards, depending on who you are in this country. Um, particularly in the black community, you have uh, programs like Stop and Frisk in New York City, where the overwhelming number of people who are pulled out, who are her stopped and, and searched are, are black. The uh, ticketing in Ferguson that I, I believe Grover mentioned, mentioned earlier uh, was basically taxation on a black population in a mixed race town. And here in DC, you have the gun recovery units that are essentially SWAT teams that, that in certain communities that uh, harass residents and ask them if they have weapons. And I wanted to read a, uh, a section that uh, Judge Janice Rogers Brown of the DC Circuit Court of Appeals wrote about this case, uh, about a case that was brought by the uh, gun recovery, against the gun recovery units. Uh, for those not familiar with uh, DC, if you're visiting, uh, Georgetown is a very Tony shopping uh, area, uh, inhabited mostly by, by white, by white people, and these gun recovery units are primarily in Southeast DC, which is heavily African-American. She wrote, as a thought experiment, try to imagine the scene in Georgetown. Would residents of that neighborhood maintain there was no pressure to comply if the district's police officers patrolled Prospect Street in tactical gear, questioning each person they encountered about whether or not they were carrying a legal, an illegal firearm? Nothing about the gun recovery unit's modus operandi is designed to convey a message that compliance is not required. While viewing such an encounter as consensual I, uh, is roughly equivalent to finding the latest Sasquatch site incredible, I submit to the prevailing orthodoxy, but I continue to reject its counterintuitive pre premise. She goes on to say, with the guise of voluntary consent stripped away, the reality of the district's regime is revealed. It is, a it is a rolling roadblock that sweeps citizens up at random and subjects, th subjects them to undesired police interactions, culminating in a search of their persons and effects. If the Fourth Amendment is intended to offer meaningful protection in the context of Terry stops, the voluntary consent exemption cannot be used to engage with members of the public en masse and at random to, fab to fabricate articulable suspicions for virtually every citizen, offers, citizen officer's encounter on patrol. And I think if you... It applied uh, not only the gun recovery unit uh, tactics, but the descriptions that Vicky described of border patrols, like here in DC, we are within 100 miles of, of the coastline. And that just churches, uh, the Christian and Jewish uh, religious houses were being 
surveyed for scary, you know, scary people, terrorists. Uh, I think you would see a, consi a considerably different approach that uh, American law enforcement would take. Um, with that said, we will open up to questions. Uh, as every panel is, uh, please keep your question a question, and uh, we'll wait for the microphone. Uh, Howard Woldridge from LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Question for Vicki. So I've never had this problem. Can you run me through a scenario, a narrative, uh, where I, Howard, is driving down the road within 100 miles, I'm driving home today, and I get stopped by, is it a, it's gotta be a, it's gotta be a Border Patrol agent, right? Can't be just a Frederick County cop, correct? And then tell me how he takes me into custody until I prove I'm an American citizen. How does that work? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things, and if you never traveled to the border, um, I don't know how to best describe it, but we're inside the United States. There are such things as roving patrols that will pull you over, but by and far, the vast majority of the way that border residents experience Border Patrol is by going through these checkpoints that exist north or in, in the interior. And so generally speaking, when I travel to Albuquerque or I go to Tucson or I go past El Paso, there's like this, what we call the cage, because you cannot travel outside of that region without having to go through a checkpoint. And so what happens is that that results in a lot of negative consequences ranging from just the darn inconvenience of having to pull over on my way to a meeting in Albuquerque to answer some question about what my citizenship is. And by and far, that's all the question they ask you, right? They ask you, are you a US citizen? And basically all you have to answer is yes or no. And invariably, because um, I look and appear American and I speak English without an accent, I rarely get sent to secondary. But somebody else who was born in Mexico, like I was born in Mexico, I'm Mexican as Mexican as tamales are, they don't pull me over to secondary, right? However, US citizens aren't required to carry their citizenship papers. And so what happens, though, is that a lot of people who appear Mexican, but who are US citizens or lawful permanent residents, get pulled over to secondary. So in a way, that's creating this sort of second class citizenship, if you will, within the border region. And then also, I mean, one, one really important thing to look into is how effective are these checkpoints? I mean, if you look at the statistics that, um, that even the government issues, there are not very many people without documents that are getting apprehended at these checkpoints. So why do we have these in place and why do we create this situation um, for border residents when it's unnecessary and it doesn't contribute to a safer, you know, to protect national security is the question. I mean, and technically speaking, it's 100 miles, and they've created this sort of statutory, um, there, I mean, there is no statutory proof to that, or a need for that. The question is, so I don't have my driver's license with me for some reason, I don't have my passport, can they hold me indefinitely until I prove that from my birth certificate from Great Lakes, Illinois, or how, how far could they technically take a stop until what? I prove I'm an American citizen or not? Well, that's the weird paradox, right? Because US citizens aren't required to carry proof of citizenship. 
So why they would pull you over to secondary and how much they're going to search your vehicle and your person is pretty much they have to sort of articulate a good reason for it. They can't just do it randomly. However, they'll find a good reason. And we know from just very many experiences from people who've described to us what happens to them in secondary, they'll rip their whole car apart. And at that point, it doesn't matter what your citizenship is, right? Does that make sense? In the back. Thanks. Hi. Um, I was wondering if I could ask two quick questions to, to Vicki. One is just thinking about um, stops literally going through the border from the U.S. to Mexico or Mexico on the way back. I'm wondering if they're, you know, understanding that obviously stopping somebody based on the color of their skin is not ideal. What, but at least as things stand, not everyone is, is asked for documents. So sort of what the recommendation is for best practices? Would it be to ask every driver to provide proof of citizenship? Would it be setting up something that is not every driver, but more, but not arbitrary? So every fourth driver, every fifth driver is asked to produce papers, sort of what the, what the guidance ideally is on that, specifically going through the border, not thinking about the, that, about the internal checkpoints. And second, I'm just curious if there's any, um, connection at the internal checkpoints between those checkpoints and asset forfeiture, which I know has been an issue you know, in a whole variety of other places, just thinking about general police stops within the country. Well, first of all, uh, on checkpoints, I know you weren't asking about checkpoints, but I do think that they need to go away. We don't really need them. At ports of entry, there could be a higher argument for asking for um, a passport. Um, only because you're, there is that sort of you have to admit somebody into this country. In order to admit them, you want to know who they are. Not necessarily that they're U.S. citizens, but that they have, you know, this sort of admissibility into the country. And I think um, where we kind of are, the trickier issue is really about at what point are you allowed to search that person, right? And so, for example, I have this perfect, this case where we were bringing somebody to the border because she was alleging being sexually assaulted by a Border Patrol agent. They subjected her to a search, and she was so intimidated by that that she dropped all charges and decided not to press charges anymore. And that, the question that brings up for me is at what point can we just decide this person is, an, is, a, is a woman, She's, you know, she was shorter than I am, and that's pretty short, <laughs> At what point are we going to say that this person needs to be searched at the border? So that, to me, is a tricky question, that you know, we have to have a good articulable reason to search that individual and it not be intimidation either, because it was obvious that they were using intimidation in this particular instance. Um, the rules of whether you get admitted or not to the country, I think those are clear, right? are much more clearer than when we engaged in the Fourth Amendment violations. Thank you. I have to thank all the NGOs and the well-functioning police services and everybody for doing the right thing. My concern, though, is that for a great many of Americans, this isn't happening to them. This is happening to other people that they're afraid of. So 
while organizations are fighting this and fighting the good fight, and I'm sitting here feeling outraged, I'm a white woman with middle, I'm a middle class white woman, and I don't generally fear the police when I go out. I don't expect, and if it does happen to me, it might happen once somewhere, and it'll be mild probably, and I go about my day afterwards. So how do we, <laughs> to me it's outrageous what's happening. It really is. I love hearing what the police are doing about it in various cities, but that's not the various little towns where it's probably not happening. Uh, we don't have best practices with police forces everywhere. So what do we do? I mean, this is, this is a, how do we get people up in arms about these constitutional violations and threats to our fabric? Yeah, I, I would add, and I'm sorry, I don't want to, I'll just quickly answer. Um, one of the things that I think is really key, and I think what you're bringing up in your comments, is the idea of implicit institutional bias. And I think that is something that it would be a good idea for the country to sort of step back. And I think this is what Black Lives Matter has done. It has interrupted things and has pushed the country to step back and look at what institutional systemic bias is. And my hope is, I mean, we have witnessed, for example, use of force trainings by Border Patrol. We've witnessed use of force trainings by Las Cruces Police Department, for example. And one thing that has always struck me as being very curious is that in these use of force trainings, they always use video where the perpetrator invariably is a black man or a person of color. And they're not even aware that that's what's happening in their use of force training. They're also not aware when they're actually talking to agents about, you need to make sure that you make it home safe every night to your families. And of course, we want our agents to make it home safe to their families every night. But what about the public? Don't you want that person that you encounter, every person that you encounter, to also make it home at night to their families? So that's just a, a way I want to encourage people to reframe how we train our officers who are there to serve and protect our communities. Well, I mean, I think that that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the critical point is that, you know, in, when you think about what, I'll revert a little to legal doctrine here. I mean, for example, these, you know, there's a series of Supreme Court cases that basically talk about how, you know, people of certain ancestry can be stopped at a border checkpoint. And I think, you know, the, the cases establish this 100 mile, and 100 mile range within the border, um, which led to that graphic. And so this is stuff that's been legally, um, you know, sanctioned by the Supreme Court. So there is, I think, a critical aspect of it being how outraged are you enough to make, to, to, to do something about it. I mean, the, the reason why the Black Lives Matter movement has made such inroads is tapped into people's feelings and kind of used them in it or had the collective sense of injustice propelling people towards some sort of change. Now, institutionally, you're seeing that there are lots of barriers to that and legally, I think, you know, it, it's, it, it, I mean, it's as clear as possible that there is a legal barrier. In the lunchtime remarks, there was a question about equal, equal protection. The Supreme Court has said there's no equal protection violations here. There, there was the, the, there's a case from 1996, United States versus Armstrong. All the crack cocaine defendants in the Central District of California in Los Angeles were, were African-American. 
No one could no one could remember a single white crack cocaine federal defendant where the penalties are at their highest. Supreme Court said there's no equal protection violation. So I think that this is the interesting thing here where we're seeing, you know, the police are reacting to uh, situations where they've been granted a lot of power. You know, the, the arrest power is virtually absolute in this country. Supreme Court has said that in a 2001 case, you know. Arresting for non-custodial, you know, non-misdemeanor, you know, violations is okay. So, I mean, I think that that's part of it, is how outraged are you getting to, to do something about it? I mean, I, mean I, I know it's a difficult, very difficult question. It's easier to study it <laughs> than to do something about it. But I, 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 that's all I have to say about that. Um, I, w- I would say... I mean, one of the reasons of this, we have this conference is to get people to understand what's actually going on in communities they may not live in. Uh, from a tactical perspective, I would uh, try to get rid of uh, invest, I mean, uh, pretextual stops is just one, one aspect. And to do that, you'd probably, I mean, as I said in the in- intro, you're going to have to end the drug war. Because right now, as, as Cynthia Lum d- described, using an arrest as metric for, uh, for uh, police, you know, for promotion or for uh, basically just, you know, for police, for the satisfaction that the the departments have towards their officers, they have to make arrests. And if if they have to make arrests, they're going to do it in any way that's possible. And the Supreme Court said, you can stop someone because they have a like a taillight out or the little light that's above your uh, your license plate is, is burned out. Well, that's a reason I can pull you over, and you just happen to be black, and I'm going to ask you to search your car. And then on top of that, they're trained to get you to give up to to give up your right to not be searched. They're going to say, "Well, I'm going to call a dog," or uh, I'll, "I'll go get a warrant," even though they really can't. They're, what they're doing is trying to get you to to give up your rights. And people who understand that, you know, uh, there was a great book called Pulled Over by uh, Charles Epp uh, from the University of Kansas that talked about the disparities in uh, traffic stops. Now, everyone knows that black people get pulled over more often. However, they broke it down where when it came down to traffic stops, it was for actual like open speeding, that uh, Whites were actually pulled over more often than uh, the blacks were on, on net, and percentage was pretty close. But for investigatory stops, these pretextual stops skewed heavily black. And most of the people who were pulled over and, and asked to be searched and consented to search were completely innocent. And people know that that's going on, and that undermines legitimacy and undermines the effectiveness of the police force. So until we change the incentives for police officers to act like that, it's just going to continue. Thanks. I'm, I'm wondering in Could you in identify cases, yourself, please? Oh, <laughs> sorry. Darylind with Vox.com. Um, in cases where you're dealing with Border Patrol working often with poli- local police departments or the FBI working with the NYPD, so you know, you're dealing with both federal and lo- local law enforcement agencies, what does accountability look like? How do you even, you know, what have communities done to force federal agencies to actually respond to local needs? I mean, that's, a, that's an excellent question because, I mean, in the border region, we have a lot of these border enforcement task forces that they work together, the high-intensity traffic, 
you know, high intensity drug trafficking areas, all of those things where local police are collaborating because of federal funding to attack a certain issue. I mean, I think the answer is pretty short and simple. You have to hold people accountable. No officer, whether they're a federal agent, whether they're local police, are, they're not above the law. And if they commit something like murder or kill someone or abuse someone, they should not, they should not be able to get away with it. I mean, that's the short and simple answer to your question. I mean, I think that the, you, that's an interesting, an interesting question simply because, you know, in the NYPD case, they dismantled the spying regime as a result of being exposed in the press and lawsuits. In the, in the case of the FBI and use of informants, I mean, the, you know, the, from former Attorney General Holder uh, to former FBI Director Mueller to the current FBI Director James Comey, they've all defended the use of informants and mapping communities, and they say we're going to continue to do it, and it's a valuable tool. And it's been a really difficult question as to how communities can mobilize um, in, a, in a kind of a more broad-based manner. You know, I think in individual cases, communities showing up to, you know, show support for ch charged defendants can have limited effects, but getting the FBI to change, is, that's been really difficult without more mass mobilization and more wider, wider understanding of these practices and the potential to impact everybody, which is still a long way off, but the seeds are there. Well, unfortunately, that uh, ends our time. Uh, please, uh, we're gonna proceed directly to panel four uh, after the stage is refreshed, so please stay in your seats, but please uh, give the panel a warm, uh, thank you.